Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, where we have the second part of my chat with singer, songwriter and actor Anders Nelson, who came here at the age of four in 1950. The son of Swedish missionaries, Anders Nelson would find pop success with the group The Continentals, which were mainly students from KG5 or the King George V school. And you can listen to last week's programme on the Hong Kong Heritage podcast. This week, Anders Nelson tells me about the advent of Mandarin pop that saw off the English language bands, about a stint in Japan at the start of the 70s, playing fast jive and boogaloo for dancing yakuzas, the advent of canto pop, and playing a corrupt police officer in Hong Kong soap operas. Continentals, when you were playing here in the 1960s, right. you would, uh, as you said, you did tea dances. What was the sort of nightlife scene at that time? Well, you know, officially being only 16, 17, I wasn't supposed to know about that. But being 5'11 already and being sneaky enough to put on a suit and tie... Uh, I sneaked into nightclubs. There's a very famous Samson family who are from the Philippines originally at the present generation, what well, same age as me, Christine Samson in particular, and her sister Vicky and so on. Their father was a famous band leader from Shanghai. And as with a lot of Filipino uh, band leaders, they married Shanghainese singers or just Shanghainese ladies. So a lot of the younger generation Filipino families are half Filipino, half Chinese, mainly from Shanghai when it was called the Paris of the East era, when they had big bands, swing, and they had bands who emulated Glenn Miller and, and all of that. And uh, I remember going to Mong Kok to the Paris nightclub and was not challenged, although it said, you know, you have to be 18 to get in. You know, nobody would challenge a white boy who they couldn't really tell whether you were, you know, under 18 or just 18 or 25. You know, it was difficult for them to tell. I'd go in and I'd go up to the bandstand and I, I didn't know them. I'd say, you know, Uncle, can I sing a song with you? And they'd look at me and they said, so what can you sing? And I would say, how about... I'm in the mood for love. Uh, my key is B flat. And they'd look, oh, he knows his key, eh? You know, oh, I was giving it a try. And I'd get up and, you know, sing with him. And that gave me a taste for that whole 
big band sound. Well, it would have been a, <clears throat> a big band sound yeah. here. I mean, you would have had, mm. I mean, you know, we still have plenty of live music going mm. on, but it's different. It's smaller in the evenings in Hong Kong. Mm. Would you have had a number of big bands here? Oh, yes. It's the eternal Hong Kong problem of high rents. Oh, sure. High real estate. But back then, you'd have had, yeah. what, the Carpios were oh, the starting? Carpios, the Diazes, you know, there were just so many families, many of them who'd come down from Shanghai in 49.50 and then re-established them here. Now, every self-respecting hotel, the Hilton, the Mandarin, the, the Peninsula, all had... Well, the formula was sort of a big band and then what they called a combo. So there'd be a combo of, say, five or six people. And the big band was mostly Filipino, and the combo often was local. And the big band, and they'd both, there was, it was not a, any sort of discrimination. It was just the big band would play everything from old-time 40s Chinese Mandarin big band songs, as well as Glenn Miller and Frank Sinatra and all of that. The combo would play more of this sort of, well, you know, in, in early 50s, there wasn't rock and roll yet, but they'd play the, maybe the slightly simpler music of the era, and they'd have a singer who, who maybe sang like, Johnny Mathis or Bing Crosby or something, just a smaller and a bigger. I think that was the main difference. And they could afford it because rents were not outrageous like they are now. Yes, I mean, you could travel from North Point through to Sham Shui Po and do sort of bar hopping or nightclub hopping. You wouldn't have to walk very far from one nightclub to the next. They were everywhere. Central was thriving. Uh, it's now moved southward up the hill, Lang Kwai Fong, Soho and so on. But the absolute centre of Central had nightclubs. I think give me Give me a few names. Okay. The Paramount, for example, it was where sort of somewhere between uh, the HSBC, Standard Chartered and the Landmark, one of those buildings there was the Paramount nightclub. And they had an imported Italian combo playing Italian songs and then some English ones. And, and who would the clientele have been? Well, I would say probably the more well-off Hong Kong people because Central would cost you more for an evening's entertainment and a meal and some wine than it would cost you in deepest, darkest Mong Kok. I mean, it's always been that way. The Golden Mile, you know, it starts at the peninsula and everything gets cheaper as you get closer to Sham Shui Po, probably because of the rents or the demographic or just, you know, the mix of population. Yeah, and there was the Savoy, there was the Mocambo, they were all in Central. Uh, the Mocambo was where the entertainment building now is, right in middle of Central. The Savoy was where I think Melbourne Plaza is now. They were there. I mean, those names are, you know, Savoy, Mocambo, they're all international nightclub names. The Paramount. Uh, it seems uh, quite glamorous. Oh, it was, it was. And in those days, people would get dressed up to go out. Many of them would not allow a male in without a coat and tie. I mean, certainly the Mandarin and the Peninsula. I don't think you could get in the lobby without a coat and tie or, you know, some like the Paramount. I think there was a strict dress code, absolutely. 
Now, when we go from um, the 60s, the, mm. would you have said that was, you know, in terms of people, uh, as we've mentioned, like Robert Lee, as in Bruce Lee's right. brother. Mm -hmm. What was it? The Thunderbirds. His, his, Robert Lee yeah. and the Thunderbirds, yes. Uh, there was a whole bunch of these kinds of bands. Right. Were they, you know, did they ebb once you hit the 70s or did, it, did the sort of live scene just, just morph into something else? That particular band scene... And we all sang in English, and uh, singing in Cantonese back in those days was considered gauche, because a lot of the English songs were used in Cantonese movies and sung by actors and people who couldn't really sing, and some of them were quite awful. So the younger generation saw that's really not cool, you know. I could give you an example. <laughs> the, the, the beautiful three coins in a fountain... That was picked up and put in a Cantonese movie, of course, in those days with no sync fees, no royalties, no nothing. And a guy, said, oh, let me see, it went, which means a fat woman falls into the gutter, which compared to three coins in a fountain, I mean, it was just had nothing to do with the original song. It probably had something to do with the local movie. Uh, the Beatles, uh, Can't Buy Me Love, Hang Fai Di La, Waving, Hey, Walk Faster, you know. Again, <laughs> nothing to do with it, but in the context that they were used, probably meant something to the movie. But you can imagine local teens, and again, this has nothing to do with, uh, you know, West versus East or Chinese. I mean, it, local kids would think, oh, that's pretty awful, you know. It's almost like probably the urban rapper hip-hop generation thinks Elvis is awful. And so, well, you know, a guy would slick back hair and wouldn't go for it. It's the generation gap thing, basically. Then that English language band scene pretty much died for the first time, it's died a couple of times in about 70, 71, because there was a huge wave of Mandarin songs in Mandarin from Taiwan. Can um, you give me a couple of examples? Of those? Testing uh, you today. Oh, testing me. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, there was one huge hit, which basically starts with, well, tonight we're not going home, which I have to move away from the mic. <laughs> Very sort of uh, oriental sounding, sort of five five tone scale sort of music, and huge. They were huge hits. All the nightclubs, all the bars, all the hostess clubs, all of them went for this Mandarin wave. from Taiwan were coming over by the boatload to perform in local nightclubs and the band singing in English were 
you know, I, I remember around about that time I was playing with a bunch of really good musicians from different bands in a nightclub called the Copacabana, believe it or not, the pre-Barry Manilow. Her name was Lola. She was a showgirl. And when we started out, we were playing all the English songs with some psychedelia, some Beatles, Stones, whatever. And one night the uh, boss came in late at night and said, oh, we have some new singers. We were obliged to back them. We walked in, no music, nothing. Just got up on stage and just said the title of the song, like the one just now, which is Cantonese which means not going home tonight they said a minor and then burst into the song and we were standing you know what you know there's no music we hadn't played us anything just something you know and uh there were two chinese members of the band who vaguely knew this and just <laughs> the keyboard player started playing and the bass player started playing we just sort of followed on behind me on a guitar just going ding 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 you know following on the singer was quite happy with it and we i think we lasted about three weeks and we said can you let us out of our contract so in my case i played for about six months in uh, hong kong's first ever topless bar which actually wasn't bottoms up that was probably the second it was the club joker which was in peking road and it, that was a surreal experience too. What period are we now in? I think you're in 70, 71. We did, I think, six months there. And then uh, a brilliant keyboard player from uh, New Zealand who was playing with me and I were asked to salvage an English band that had come over and they'd lost one of their members. He, he just sort of doubled up and, and vomited blood one night and the, another guy got homesick and went home and they had a contract to play in, in Japan so they asked, his name was uh, Robbie Moore and I, to join the band and go to Japan so that was a solution to get away from this Mandarin which he thought, well it'll last maybe six months, a year, whatever so we'll go to Japan and play. So I worked in Osaka and Tokyo uh, back in those days in Osaka in particular just nobody spoke English so I was forced to learn a few words of of Japanese. It was just a lot of fun. It was all, again, surreal because we were booked into two nightclubs back to back every night. An early one from 7 to 11, which was all fast rock and roll. We were not allowed to play any slow songs. all-male audience who danced like jive they weren't touching each other it wasn't a gay club back in those it was just they were yakuza you know japanese mafia who would it was like they were doing aerobics or something they wanted it super loud and super fast and they were not interacting with each other they were almost dancing into individually and doing their <laughs> boogaloo and stuff uh, that was surreal and, and then we had an hour's break and then from midnight till 3 a.m. we played in a hostess club which was totally the opposite 
we had to play so softly that the manager would come and yell at us if he heard the plectrums scraping the strings. Oh, too loud, too loud, too loud. And we had to play sort of what you would call soft jazz today, you know. So total contrast from four hours of rock and roll to three hours of just very laid back music, but really honed everybody's skills and sort of widened our horizons to use a cliche, you know, learned about Japan and Japanese and... And came uh, back and they were still doing Mandarin songs. Uh, it had started to kind of fade a little bit. It had gone from sort of 96.7% Mandarin songs down to about 70%. And then do you have Canto Pop coming in? Canto Pop started coming in around about then with a theme from a, a TV series on, on TVB sung by Sandra Lang. And that started that whole wave. And a lot of the hits, even to this day, are uh, TV drama themes. Back in the day, because there wasn't any sort of way to record those, and people would gather in families at 7.30, 8.30, you know, the, the peak golden hours of television, and everything came to a grinding halt. Everyone had to be at home, either eating and watching at the same time or just sitting back and watching these series. Uh, and it was a phenomenon all over Southeast Asia, Indonesia, Malaysia. These would be 20-episode, 30-episode or 40-episode drama series. Uh, so you'd get that theme song drummed into you night after night for, you know, it'd be Monday to Friday, an hour a night. It was an amazing phenomenon. It's still... Uh, survives to this day to a certain extent but mostly in the Chinatowns around the world where the sort of grannies, retirees and all, they will watch these series over and over again and nowadays you don't have to be home at 7.30 you can, you can just go on the internet and watch it whenever you want they watch it on their iPhones on the MTR, you can buy the DVDs and, and just download them basically but it was a huge phenomenon uh, uh, but these series would be about what? Oh, <laughs> a lot. The most successful ones, I would say, were set in the early days of the last century, sort of 1920s, 1910s on. I was very lucky to be back to back in two very successful series. One on RTV uh, called Hong Kong Gentleman. That, that was the first one on those channels I was on. I was in a series called The Bloodied Sword on CTV, which was a commercial radio TV channel which didn't last very long, just couldn't compete. Most people don't even know it ever started, let alone that it ended. But The Hong Kong Gentleman was a phenomenon on RTV. It had one of the highest ratings they had, and I was of course, a uh, corrupt police commissioner, of course, and it was a struggle between me and a very grassroots Chinese young man who started off pretty much as a coolie and worked his way up to a sort of Li Ka Xing level and who eventually gets his revenge on me for the hard time I've given him when he was a struggling young boy and gets me dismissed and uh, put on a boat to go back to England, which in Cantonese uh, they, the expression is to go back and peel potatoes. 
Is that right? Suta, yeah, yeah. That means basically you've left in disgrace and you're going back to England to peel potatoes. But then there was a sequel where I actually come back. But, you know, that's maybe in 10 years' time we'll do another interview. But that was big. And then TVB saw that. And I wasn't a star, but I, I was in... 38 of the 40 episodes. I was there constantly giving the Chinese star of the series a hard time, arresting him and hassling him, just generally being a nasty person. And that series is still being watched on the internet. There is a Happy Memories of RTV site or something like that where you can watch all these old series. So once you get into the 70s, you yourself decided also that once you hit 30, right, that yeah, you yeah. would stop singing and yeah. start producing. Yeah, that was 1976. Just prior to that, a group I'd put together called Ming, which originally was intended to be the five local musicians all dressed in Ming dynasty costumes that I would write and produce and they would perform but EMI who signed us up insisted that I should be in the band as well and the contract was exactly three years from 73 to 76 and in the deal I said when the contract ends the band will finish and I want three more years as a contract producer at EMI when which I and what did. Did, and once you've switched over to being a producer, mm -hmm. what kind of bands were you producing? Oh, all kinds. I produced, for example, the commemorative LP for the opening of the Art Centre, which was also surreal, because one side was all Western classical music from EMI's various labels, the Angel label and so on, and the other side was recorded at the EMI studios in Yaya Chun. And which is where? Yaya Chun. Festival Walk, it's long gone now, but it was in Far Po Street in Yaechin. We were sent artists from all over Southeast Asia by the Art Centre people. Yeah, it, so you did. Yeah. You had a wide variety oh, of done producing pretty jobs. Pretty much anything and everything, Cant, canto pop, early canto pop, and cover versions were big, so all the record companies would get local artists to cover international hits before the records had arrived in Hong Kong. So we had bands singing Bee Gees songs, uh, Elton John songs, ABBA songs in, you know, in the 70s, and, and put them all on one record, LPs, you know, cassettes and, and vinyl, and cover all the most popular songs, but with local artists who, in many cases, were well-known, whereas the original artist from yeah. overseas would not was, be known yeah. yet, but the song was great. So, you know, there was a period when those compilations of international cover versions were huge. In the, so, it, I mean, I know I'm doing a sweeping decade, but right. in the 70s, who would you have, in terms of locally... Who would you... Oh, Teresa Carpio, Lamb, George Lamb, who still does the occasional concert and, you know, fills the Coliseum for several days. Gracie Rivera, who was a, a local-born Filipina who uh, played the guitar and sang sort of folk songs, who had a huge cover of uh, Torn Between Two Lovers, which came out before the Mary McGregor version came out. Torn Between Two Loving both of you is breaking all the rules Torn between two lovers 
was a, a band from Malaysia called the Western Union Band. They were really good. The lead singer on sadly passed away a few years ago, was almost, you know, close your eyes, and uh, he was an Elton John, but the band could play everything from, you know, all the status quo and uh, all those British bands, and he could sing like Elton John, but more or less like anyone else as well. It's very clever. Uh, yeah, it was, yeah. And, uh, you know, Frances Yip. Of course, she was huge. She was a, I think, auxiliary policewoman and spokesperson for the police force. And of course, she was and still is amazing. I remember one album she did, she came in and I think she sang 10 tracks in one afternoon. She was so well prepared and she can't sing out a tune basically, just okay, let's go and we'd listen to the playback. It was almost done in real time, apart from the playback. Oh, brilliant. So Frances Yip, she still sings? She still sings occasionally. She has a concept which they do from time to time in Hong Kong, Genting Highlands, Macau casinos, right, with I think it's something like the three or maybe four canto divas with her, uh, Maria Cadero, Elisa Chan, and, and occasionally one other. I think it's the, those three, yes, and they're very popular. She lives, I think, most of the time in Australia, loves to golf. With your work, you also travelled extensively around the mainland. I have, but that's more recent. Um, started about 38 years ago when the, the sort of gates opened and Deng Xiaoping sort of opened up southern China and made Shenzhen uh, an economic zone and so on. I used to bring various bands and also sing with them at the Great China Hotel in Guangzhou. They had an, a, an amazing ballroom that held about 600 people and they would have Friday and Saturday night dances there and then lunchtime music in their coffee lounge which overlooks the, the lobby. Back in those days, of course, foreigners could only use uh, foreign exchange certificates, FECs, which locals were not allowed to be caught with or touch. And the locals had renminbi, which visitors were not allowed to mess around with. But, um, you know, on the Friday and Saturday nights, there, <clears throat> there would be local people waiting outside the hotel, begging foreigners to take them in. Um, because the older generation loved to dance. My thanks to Anders Nelson. And to play us out, this is Anders with his group Ming at the start of the 1970s and their song, You and I. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.
the times when smiling wasn't quite so hard to do. I can think of better days when everything we did was new and new. Where did we go wrong? Where did we lose that feeling that we thought was oh so strong? Where did it go? Said our love just couldn't last. We laughed and cried all summer long till suddenly the love we found was lost. Where did we go wrong? Where did we lose that feeling that we thought was oh so strong? Where did it go? 